You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. As the number of religiously affiliated Westerners continues to decline, we might be tempted to say that the United States and other Western countries are becoming more secular, but more secular doesn't necessarily mean less religious. Our guest for today on Christian Humanist Profiles argues that ostensibly secular Westerners are just as religious as they ever were. It's just their religion isn't Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but an assortment of other things, food, work, technology, and even romance. David Zoll's new book is called Seculosity. It's out now from Fortress Press, and I'm delighted that it's brought him here to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for coming on the show, David. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. At the heart of your book is a word that you coined, I believe, uh, seculosity, and I, I think probably it's best if we de- begin by defining that word for our listeners. What are we talking about when we talk about seculosity? Sure. It, it's, a, it's a combination or neologism made up of the word secular and religiosity, uh, which is obviously kind of a mouthful. Um, so I, I wanted a word that described the experience that I was having more and more in everyday arenas, things like going to the gym or going to a really a nice restaurant or something and walking away and feeling like, gosh, that kind of felt like church. Um, there was something more than just uh, exercise happening or more than just nutrition and, or food. Uh, so I wanted a word to describe it. And um, that's basically it, it's kind of a euphemism for replacement religion. Um, but I, 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 my definition in the book is that um, seculosity is a word for uh, religious energy or devotion or um, kind of sentiment that is directed at an earthly rather than a heavenly target. It's, it's akin to idolatry. Um, but it's not quite the same thing because what I'm, my interest lies more in the realm of self-justification rather than worship. Yeah, and I, let's see. I have I have some questions here about that that self-justification because I think that's a, that's a really important point here. Seculosity depends on a definition of the word religious, and you begin by using David Dark's very Talikian definition of religious religion as a person's compelling story. I was pleased to see that you move on from that definition pretty quickly. I think it's a, I think it's such a broad definition that it almost doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Instead, you say that religion is what we turn to to provide us with enoughness. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I think uh, whatever kind of code of righteousness a person is ascribing to is usually their religion. And by that, I mean <clears throat> whatever standard of behavior, belief, um, uh, even convention that they're looking to to tell them they're okay. The book opens with a quote from T.S. Eliot from the cocktail party where he says that half the harm in the world is done by those who don't mean to do harm, but they're not interested. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. They're not interested in the harm they do because they are engaged in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. So your religion is at least a small R religion. I acknowledge that there's a difference between, uh, you know, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and the, the traditions that we have and these sort of functional uh, religions. But uh, whatever it is you're depending on for meaning, purpose, salvation, and yes, to be told that you're okay, that you are enough, that you are righteous, uh, or at least deriving some, whatever it is you're deriving, even though the, the, the term enoughness doesn't even mean anything without uh, some kind of standard of, of, of what enough is. So that's um, 
I always refer to it as a guilt, whatever is your preferred guilt management system. Um, and I think everyone sort of has one of these. Um, right. Yeah. But the funny so, thing about guilt management systems is they end up producing as much guilt as they try to manage, right? Because because the whole point of self-justification, but because of the society we live in, you have to justify yourself by pointing out that other people are not justified. And so these these systems end up being horribly self-replicating. Oh, my goodness. That's actually a really – I think that's a really novel way to put it. They, they produce as much guilt as they ameliorate. And um, – because yes, other people become props in our search for enoughness, and uh, either either they represent the height of goodness and truth and beauty, and we you know grovel in self-loathing before them, or we use other people. Just the classic case of leaving a dinner party and having to completely tear down the, your hosts in order to feel better about yourself. It's yeah. um, it's a it's a very human impulse, and I think it's a very it's one that's mapped out pretty clearly in the Bible, but it's also a uh, it's one that is now finding expression in the kitchen and uh, you know as I say in the uh, you know in the classroom things like that. I, I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but uh, who cares, right? I, I <laughs> it, it seems to me that one of one of the problems that you hit on in this book that I've noticed in our society is. We live in this culture that has these very exacting standards that are sometimes not well expressed. So you, you, you know, by justifying myself, by by proving my enoughness, I end up setting a standard that I don't actually verbalize that everybody else needs to live up to. And the other part of that is that our society is completely devoid of the notion of grace. So, so that if somebody screws up, if somebody doesn't eat the right foods or work hard enough or vote for the right person, there's really no hope for them. They're just completely written off. And I, I wonder, I wonder what you would have to say about that. I think that's that's what a lot of the the book is really kind of an apologetic for grace itself. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm my I'm a Christian, so that's that's where my conception of grace comes from. But uh, yes, I think that you have all these replacement religions that re, that re, that replicate a lot of the the. Um, the law without any of the grace. So a lot of the demand, a lot of the um, obligation, a lot of the ritual, but very little of the absolution or the reconciliation mechanisms that are in place in, in, in by what we would call grace. And so um, absolutely is what I mean. Uh, I, my term for what we do with people today uh, and is we, we cast them into secular hell from which there's really no return. If you've um, I mean, th th there might be some ways in which a person can atone enough in the public square in order to win back uh, a hearing or win back a uh, an audience. But for the most part, if uh, the court of public opinion finds you guilty, uh, they, they 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 cast you into sort of outer darkness, and um, there's from which there's no return. Uh, that said, I think we also have a. a very very short attention span so that's <laughs> how permanent all this stuff is it depends a little bit and or it can, it, it can be easily overstated but yes we hate uh i think culturally right now we, we're really at a place where we both are desperate for grace and kind of hate it in a in a in the same breath um because we don't want to ever ever act like we're being easy on uh oppressors or perpetrators 
But then the flip side of that is if, if somebody's on our side, because we don't believe in grace, we can't admit they did anything wrong, right? So there can't be any any um, transgression from people we like. And that means that if they transgress, either we have to ignore the transgression or we have to uh, cast them into secular darkness, as you say. Yeah, or justify their transgression, rationalize it through some sort of elaborate means. And, and it creates all sorts of us versus them um, oppositions that are very wearisome. And as we know, they just um, require an enormous amount of energy to negotiate on a daily basis. The the the, the way people talked about Kobe Bryant after he, he died a, f a few months ago, I, I think is very instructive because here's a guy who, if – if he had done what he is alleged to have done, if he'd done that last year instead of 15 years ago, he never would have been forgiven. And yet, because it happened so long ago, and because he he took some broadly pro-woman steps, because he seemed to love his family, and because, and of course, because he died young, um, you know, that stuff didn't get mentioned all that often, which is, I, I don't know, interesting. No, I, I, you know, I've written an extra chapter for the paperback edition of this book, which comes out in August, and I wrote it all about celebrity and uh, or f fandom and the way that we uh, use celebrities to um, to justify ourselves or to we over-identify with them, or and when they disappoint us, we 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 have to tear them down or crucify them, basically. Uh, or if we're that closely associated with them, we have to then rationalize everything they've ever done rather than, you know, just enjoy the, the good things they've done and, you know, kind of move on from the rest of it. So it's a very interesting – the scapegoating mechanisms around celebrities are also very interesting to talk about. Yeah, I would love to read that chapter. Uh, yeah, August. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the specific uh, – routes to enoughness that you talk about in the book. Um, and we won't go over all of them. We want our, we want our listeners to uh, actually go buy the book instead of just having the whole thing summarized for them. But I want to talk about a few of them anyway. Sure. One of the places we clearly look for enoughness is our work. And, and you point out that Americans uh, in particular are working harder than ever. We're devoting more and more of our lives to our jobs in comparison to Europeans and to Americans of previous decades. Why do you think that is, and what ways does it manifest in society other than the obvious one that we're working more? Um, well, I, the, the, I think it's basically the almost agreed upon, most agreed upon immediate American barometer of worth and identity. So uh, I think Americans have always been sort of a, a bootstrapping, self-sufficient American dream uh, is me making it on my own. And, um, you know, this is the place where anyone, if you just work hard enough, you can get to where you want to be. I think that that's, that's sort of in our DNA a little bit, and we've always worked longer hours than other countries. Um, I think what's happened with um, the technological um, – boom or revolution, the smart technology that which we now basically can, if we want to, we never have to stop working. Uh, one of the things I, I mentioned, I think in the technological technology chapter is that the more technology improves or as, 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 as domestic technology improved, uh, you know, the, the second the vacuum cleaner was introduced, it wasn't that it was supposed to save time for women working at home. But instead, what it really did was introduce a new standard that your um, your your floors now had to be immaculate. And so uh, and whereas previously when they 
couldn't get immaculate, there was more of, I guess, grace around that, or at least a um, uh, room to move on that. And the same has happened with technology. So if you're a person who is connected to your work through email, and it, it used to be, you know, I'll answer my emails that I get nine to five or nine to six, nine to seven, nine to eight. And all of a sudden, uh, if you can answer an email at 11 p.m. or, you know, you sort of have to. And that's a very quick slide. So there's a technological component. I think there's an, a, a historical component to American workaholism. And I, I also think that um, we're, we're, we're really we're, we're really sold, you know, this, this idea that, uh, you know, success is uh, – career success is the ultimate measure of a person's life. And so um, that is uh, – that's just a, um, a default assumption of most Americans, that that's what's the most important thing going on in life, even if it's clearly not. So um, that's some of what's what's happening. I, I, I think work is also a great way to distract ourselves from our, our mortality and distract ourselves from any kind of nagging doubts or uncertainties. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, um, uh, it, it can be very therapeutic almost or uh, – it can be very therapeutic to be able to go to the work and be able to solve a problem and to, or to make progress in something when, you know, in your own life and in your relationships or with your children, it's never, it's never that cut and dry. And so there's a way in which we're all climbing this ladder because it distracts us from other things that are going on while also, uh, you know, advancing us along some path to I don't know where, but – that's that's me. That's a, that's that's a lot, I guess. But it's very interesting to see what happens when uh, a, you know a global pandemic stops everyone from working and yeah. the, the 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 psychic uh, pain and confusion that that causes and discomfort. You might even say, like, I don't know, who, I don't know who I am. Yeah, that right, kind of thing. right. Well, I think that's that's especially true of men, and maybe it's it's becoming more increasingly true of women. But I was unemployed for a period in my my late 20s and it really was like that like who who am i the, the thing that strikes me about the pandemic is how few of our jobs are really all that necessary and the people whose jobs are necessary are people like grocery store employees and and other people who i suspect are less inclined to define themselves by their jobs maybe that's maybe that's an oversimplification of what it's like to be a grocery store clerk <laughs> No, I, I think that that's been I, – I, I definitely wonder about that for myself. Um, you know, what, what is necessary here and, and so much of the internet stuff that we think is so important, you know, it feels like it could all go away tomorrow. Um, and so, I mean, it's actually one of the reasons I wrote a book is to have something done on paper. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you have a legacy now. Oh, yeah. I'm going to live forever. I can't wait. <laughs> You know, when I was a when I was a college professor, I used to tell my students my job is about as tenth uh, as important as the custodian's jobs because if I don't come in for ten days, it's no big deal. But if the custodians don't come in for a single day, uh, this this place is going to grind to a halt. You know, and yet I know. You know I'm the one with the social esteem. I'm the one who made the the relative big bucks compared to the custodians. It, it's really weird that we valorize work like this, but we as a society, we're not great at recognizing what work is really important. No, I, I you know, and one definitely, you wonder what, what that'll look like on the other end of this, uh, you know, I'm sure 
listeners will realize we're recording this right in the middle of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, but it will be interesting to see what is necessary. What's essential? That word essential yeah. has become a, quite a verdict for people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever felt that anything I did was essential. <laughs> yeah, maybe my maybe my like voc- my, my vocation as a father. That's about yeah, it. Right, right. And I, I don't have children, so I don't even have uh, that. I don't have that to cling to. Certainly, my podcasting not essential. Oh, I don't think so. This this one is going to be essential. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're, a joke, you're, a joke. Yeah. You have a chapter on busyness, which is obviously a, a related concept to work, and, and you introduce this concept of performancism, which you suggest rules the modern American psyche. You define performancism as the idea that, quote, there is no distinction between what we do and what we are. And that definition reminds me of Sartre's famous definition of existentialism as the idea that existence precedes essence, the idea that we are, in a real sense, that just nothing more than the sum of our actions. But... Uh, it's hard to imagine Sartre signing off on our culture of workaholism and busyness. How did we move from existentialism as a humanism to performanceism? You know, I've had, I've definitely heard a lot about the essence precedes uh, uh, existence, or existence precedes essence. Excuse me. Um, and I, I I wonder that myself. I, I I see this when I use the word performanceism, I'm really trying to translate the the New Testament language of justification according to works of the law, which is a huge mouthful. But um, how did we move uh, from these things? I, I mean, I don't think the internet has helped any in terms of uh, everyone believing they're uh, you know uh, an influencer and um, needing the approval in the in the form forms of tally marks from their their peers like that that is that is going to increase whatever natural propensity we have for performanceism we got to get that like button off twitter i know do you know they they tried to take the the like button off in um france on instagram and uh or at least someone told me this recently and the, the people just revolted and they said That's, what, what what else are we on here for? <laughs> what are we on here for it's true though right like if you if you post something to twitter and you don't get any likes and i don't get that many because i don't have that many followers but if i don't get any i you know it it, it hits me somewhere deep at the core of who i am which is a <laughs> sickness right it's the sickness you're describing here it it is and that performanceism that which is it's it's uh it's exemplified most, excuse me. It's exemplified most viscerally and pro- publicly on social media, but it's there in in other forms. I mean, um, I, I I talk about, um, you know, I think it was, I think it was Bruce Wayne who once said, "What what you believe doesn't matter. It's what you do. <laughs> it's what you do when the chip down or something like in Batman Begins." I actually had a student write an essay on that movie and its relationship to existentialism as a humanism. So there's there's lots of connections being made here. Interesting, interesting. Well, Batman, of course, was extremely busy. He never stopped. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was also sort of an Ubermensch, but. Is, excuse me, is, present tense. Yeah, that's right. Mm. As I read your accounts of workaholism and busyness, I found myself wondering about the material conditions that have led to that epidemic, because it seems to me that a lot of us lose ourselves in our work, not necessarily because we want to, although certainly there are people who want to lose themselves in their work, but because we're expected to. I, I think a lot of us are afraid that we'll be fired if we don't make our jobs our life. Uh, do you agree with that? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, when, when you're having to interview for a lot of jobs, not every job, probably not a custodial job, but, uh, you know, I, I work with undergraduates here uh, part-time at the University of Virginia, and when they're interviewing for something like working for Amazon or working for, you know, McKinsey or something like that, they have to basically say to the – they have to somehow convince the interviewer that this is all they've ever wanted and who they are and every – ounce of their being will, will be enveloped by this new uh, position, which is like, you know, junior sales associate or something like that. But it's, uh, that's uh, absolutely, you have, you have to pitch that. And then all of a sudden, I think sometimes people start to believe their own hype, but a lot of times, um, y you know, if you don't show up, I think I, I use the example in there about sick days. And if they're, there's become a phenomenon, at least pre-coronavirus, where people wouldn't weren't taking their sick days, um, and so they were coming into the office sick, and they weren't coming in necessarily because they wanted to work. They were they were coming in because they were afraid of getting behind, and all of a then that made made that just raised the bar for everyone else who felt like when they got sick they couldn't come in, and um, then there's this hyper competitiveness, and uh, depending on the field, um, you really really can. Um, you know, you, you really you really can lose a job if it doesn't look like your entire being is invested in it. And that's I think that that's that that leads to a deep malaise in the wider um, culture and uh, a cynicism, too, about what matters. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. I, I wonder, do you think that there are political solutions to the crisis of business? So much of your book is about personal solutions. And I, I wonder if maybe we could solve some of this with some sort of political program. I wonder about that too. I think, um, uh, yeah, I was reading, I think it was Bob Garfield's uh, American Manifesto recently, and I thought he had some good solutions. Um, whether, I, I think, um, I, right now, my, if, if you were to wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me that question, I would say that somehow, some way, Silicon Valley needs to be reined in. And I don't think that that is going to happen through free market. I think that's yeah. going to be some sort of government regulation. And I'm not, you know, I, I try to remain, as I say in the book, fairly like, you know, apolitical, whatever that means. But uh, from where I'm sitting, that is, the internet is, it, at least as it currently stands, has proven to be pretty um, corrosive to our, our our larger mental health. And I don't know how that could possibly be changed ex unless there's some sort of regulation. I, I just think about so, there's, there's a law in France or so, I'm told, that uh, makes you makes employers unable to force you to answer your emails after work hours. So I guess you could answer them if you wanted to, so it wouldn't solve that part of the problem. But the expectation can't be there. And, uh, I mean, doesn't that sound heavenly? That sounds great. That sounds great. I, I think that there are certain things like that. I mean, whether that could ever happen in America that is, is so intoxicated on its own work ethic, I don't know. But it, I, I, when it comes to, like, family life and, and when you when you watch um, – I don't want to go too long about the technology piece, but when you watch, uh, uh, when you hear that, you know, some of these big tech mavens don't allow their children to use their own devices because they think it'll take over their lives, it'll prey upon all of their addictive impulses, that you wonder if maybe there's something public health-wise that can be can be put into place. It has to do with also, you know, child care and um, uh, things like, you know, 
maternity leave and stuff like that. I, I think we we could do for a, a lot of help in, in in these regards. But right now, it feels like people feel like they're they're uh, they're um, they're bound to the bottom line, and uh, so and maybe, maybe this too will be interesting to watch on the other side of the pandemic because because that that's another thing I think people are having being forced to take stock of. Your your book is is weirdly in some ways it's become less relevant just because the world is so different, but in some ways it's become hyper relevant because some of the fissures you're pointing out in this book seem to me to be have turned into canyons here in the last few weeks. Wow. Thank you, because I worry that it, it got made obsolete real fast. But I, uh, yeah, I think that the deep, the spiritual nature of the, what's going on with our seculosity and the, the funk that it throws us all into and the relational, um, you know, transactional, re- relational, the loneliness, basically, that it creates is something that I, I, you know, I was talking to someone at a at a at a book event about it, and they they were asking me about a solution. They were saying that they had read it in a group, and they were asking me about a solution to what do I see? It's like if I had to say one thing that could happen that could um, you know help or address some of the uh, the real problem of seculosity and, and the anxiety, the loneliness, and the exhaustion that I try to describe. Uh, I, she said that would be sort of everyone having to put everything on pause for two months. Huh. <laughs> and she said she, – like it was right before this ha- happened. She was saying, I think this might be kind of – you know, in, in some strange sense, it might be kind of a gift to – figure out who you are when uh, you know when all this stuff isn't these engines aren't turning yeah uh, that that will be interesting on the other <laughs> hand people <laughs> might just turn on each other and I, I always think of i always think of that george carlin bit where he, he says if you want to know what human beings really are just turn the power off for two hours <laughs> i don't think i've heard that but someone was telling me about it quoting carlin to me the other day about about the pandemic um no, well, you know, but this – what is interesting is that I'm seeing in as people have to stop working and have to – are not busy. They're not allowed to have uh, social life. They're not allowed to do all these things. You're seeing some acts of kindness occur that i am been almost um, – I kind of think we all needed to see. We need to be reminded that you know, it, it, it's partly to be faced with something that's a sort of a universal enemy, which mm-hmm. is really death, you know, the enemy. Um, the virus is is the enemy. I think that is able to draw people together in a way that I, I you'd almost given up hope they could be drawn together. And uh, but more than that, unlike a sort of a recession from 2008, you're seeing people give things away, and uh, you see some of their better angels coming out. I, I, maybe that's it's too soon to, to make any pronouncements about it. But all that to say is, I think I, I see some good things happening already. Um, amidst the terror and the, the, you know, of course, the disease. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps that everybody in the world is affected by this. Maybe they're not affected equally, but they're all affected existentially. You know, it, it could kill any of us, and it, it could and probably will kill somebody we care about. You know, so yeah. nobody's winning from this. I think I think that helps. Yes, and nobody big... feels like they're enough to use your terminology. <laughs> No, in fact, we've had all those take those things taken away from us overnight, and uh, I, again, I think it could be 
what is it? Stephen Colbert? He quotes Tolkien. He says, "What punishments are not gifts?" You know, uh, it, it's a heavy thing he says. It's in relation to his his, his father dying. But um, I I feel like I'm living through something that is going on uh, that um, is it is not tangential to the book. I think it's it's right there. You know, what kind of parent are you when there's no other parents around judging you? You know, it's. Uh, to to make you feel like you're enough or uh there's no grades um it, it could be that you know there could be some waking up that occurs through this but then again we could go back to just um anesthetizing ourselves uh, with uh overactivity as soon as we can well and i mean to some degree we're still doing that and i think that leads into the next question because one solution maybe to being plagued by a disease of workaholic seculosity would be to throw ourselves into our leisure time. But in fact, leisure has become just another place to work out performanceism and a, a, another place to, to strive for enoughness. Where, where do you see that playing out in, in the way we approach our off hours? Oh, sure. I mean, now it's uh, I, the one of the extreme examples I, I use in the book is that the way that sleep technology has become an almost sleep has become almost a competitive sport, like a, the perfectionistic pursuit of who can how you can optimize your sleep the most. And this is a big trend. Uh, you know, the, the mattress technology and you know, weighted blankets and, you know, white noise and sleep supplements and things like that. Blackout curtains. And that's uh, all of a sudden there's something called orthosomnia where people are staying up all night because they're worried about the quality of their sleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, that's an extreme example. But uh, the way that we you know, – a Fitbit you know, has, has – everything gets counted um, constantly and everything's quantifiable and measurable. And, and all of a sudden you, know, uh, you don't have hobbies. You have side hobbies hustles or you you're not just a jogger you're, you're training for a marathon constantly and that's a um leisure is uh is no longer seems to be like a a, a respite from performanceism it sends instead it just becomes like a, a a different venue for performanceism or a place where the maybe the performance the stakes are a little bit lower uh but you can still make a contribution uh on uh, on your on your bike or something or uh, you can't just be, be a, a fisherman you have to be working on like fly fishing and getting the best of this and that and, and there's a possibility that I'm on, that some of this only applies to certain um, you know areas of the socioeconomic ladder but there's also evidence that shows that it's pretty widespread everywhere um, that m leisure time has kind of uh, gone the way of the leisure suit. That's what I put it in the book. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you're not just a, you're not just, you don't just literally like music. You, you've got a podcast about music. Like I'm, I'm making fun of myself now, or, uh, you're a DJ, you know, it's, um, everything's got to become a, a new, new, new way of, um, of climbing a ladder or asserting yourself or it's not, it's not, uh, the very places we used to go to um, escape the uh, the command, the mandate to improve um, and to you know progress have become have been annexed in a way. Yeah, there's there's just no escape from it. And then with with um, music or with movies or TV, the 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 sheer volume of it 
means that you have to keep up with it and all of a sudden watching television becomes a chore you know it's something yeah. you have to get through so you can watch the next series huh. yeah you know in case you missed it right that's the great acronym i-c-y-m-i um you, you better keep up <laughs> or you're or you're not enough or uh you won't you won't uh it, it, there, there's there used to be at least the illusion of mastery of that's true yeah culture don't that as much anymore uh but it has you do hear people complain and in the age of sort of uh peak tv has become um freighted with like uh you know obligation homework well, and, and everybody, because of the Internet, because it's so democratizing, everybody has to be a critic. Everybody has to be an expert. You have to be able to rattle off your opinions on the latest uh, cultural artifacts. And, I mean, good Lord, there's no way there's no way to keep up, let alone to enjoy the things you're actually engaging with. Yes. I mean, because I because of the, the work I do with with Mockingbird, which is the website that I edit. I'm often told by people they're almost embarrassed. They're like, "How do you keep up with it all?" And um, as though it's a, they feel judged by the amount of stuff that I'm able to take in. But it's an illusion because I'm not actually taking it all in. I'm other people are forwarding things. You know, <laughs> you have like a bunch of spies out there who are uh, writing reports for you basically all the time. And and uh, but then I, w what I hear though in their voices sometimes is this uh, sense of guilt of uh, you know I just. I just don't know, you know. Uh, I don't know how you find the time. I really, I really wish I, would, I was that kind of person, but I have to deal with the, you know, quotidian realities of my life. I wish I was that kind of person is such an interesting thing to say because it both declares their their feeling like they're not enough, and also mm -hmm. lets you know that you're not enough because the implication is what are you neglecting about being a human being in order to keep up with all this stuff. Yeah, there's always an accusation sort of hidden in there, isn't there? It's just it's Gosh. everywhere. Well, it's it's everywhere. It's it's inescapable, which is why uh, you know, this is why a, a world in which there is no such thing as grace is um a very sad and uh, you know, d d depressed um suicidal world, uh I think. Uh because there's no there's no off button to a lot of this stuff. I think that leads us nicely into a discussion of romance. Um, you point out that for centuries, people sought out marriages of reason, which would be marriages based on pragmatic and economic reasons. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty much undeniable that in the 21st century, almost everyone in the West is after a marriage or at least a relationship of instinct in which, as you put it, attraction and desire drive us to the altar. I suspect you're not criticizing marriages of instinct as such, but what is the peculiar danger that they present that marriages of reason might not. It, it the the danger is that the, you're looking to another person to completely meet every single one of your needs or anticipate them. In in, in effect, you're looking for salvation rather than uh, companionship, um, because there is something so transcendent about romance and falling in love that you. Um, uh, I, I quote, uh, you know, Ernst Becker, who talks about apocalyptic romance, where romance becomes really the first place we go after we've sort of stopped looking to God for um, deliverance. And so um, it, we, it, becomes, it becomes weighted down or burdened with all of this pressure. And so um, uh, 
and then once you have the internet opening up the the potential your potential partners to the entire world not just the people in your hometown or in your apartment building or at your church but the entire world and then there's this idea that there's sort of a, a yin to your yang or a, a kind of a soulmate out there that's an enormous amount of pressure and so all of a sudden romance becomes freighted with even more not just the anxiety of being rejected but the anxiety of uh, self uh realization um that is uh you know never ending i uh i got married in 2009 so i never really had to deal with online dating i never had to mm. do the the whole app thing and i i thank god every day that i don't i don't know how anybody deals with that you know, I feel the same way. I watch all my other friends and things because I got married in 2007, and we're, we're at the tail end of something because every today it's no longer like a – for a while there, it was a, it was a strange thing. You know, it was something people would be embarrassed about, but now it's just, it's just what you do. Yeah, the, the, the whole the whole swipe left thing, or swipe, I don't know which one's good and which one's bad, I'm glad to say. But yes. the, I, I just – like the, the idea that you would make such a – uh, such an instantaneous judgment on a person, and and even worse that somebody out there, thousands of people out there are making an instantaneous judgment on you. On, the same way, I yes. cannot imagine. Exactly, and you know, not so. Not only do we look to another person to be our everything, to be our best friend and our, you know, our co-parent and our, you know, the perfect lover and the, you know, the the absolute, you know, um, some partner in life. Another person is looking to us for that. You know, that's that's the scary part. Is that uh, if that's what we're looking for, if someone we're looking for someone else to complete us, then uh, then then. Odds are someone else is going to look to us to complete them, and we know ourselves, and we know that we're probably not going to be good at completing anyone. Right, right. I hate myself. Why on earth would they expect that of me? <laughs> you know, this yeah. chapter made me think about the current social craze for polyamory. That is a craze that, that seems to revive every few decades uh, mm. and then eventually burns itself out. Uh, do you agree with me that polyamory is an expression of our desire to have a romantic partner fulfill all of our needs? Gosh, uh, yeah, I, I assume it's not. Um, I don't know that much about it. I know that there's like Christian polyamory at this point, and there's all sorts of. Uh, I, I've seen people sort of, uh, you know, in 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 my spheres try arrangements that are very non-traditional and usually they combust according to um someone someone in the situation doesn't feel like any of their needs are being met right uh and it becomes a very um almost the worst way to go about it but yeah it's sort of one of those proofs in the pudding things but i do think you're looking to um it becomes everything. It, it's all about receiving rather than giving, or at least that's how it how it appears to me. But I, I'm not on the inside of that. I'd have a hard time judging it. Yeah. Well, and, and fair enough. I did write a book on John Updike, so I'm pretty skeptical of uh, of polyamory and swinging and all its forms. <laughs> you did. Wow. Yeah. Nobody that's will great. ever read it. It was a 500 uh, 500 copy academic press thing, but. So anytime anybody talks about polyamory, my eyes roll all the way back to the back of my head. Like, didn't, didn't they try this in the 70s? Didn't it, didn't it uh, end well, terribly for everyone? It never, it's never really ended very well. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, wow. That's an interesting. What's what's the title of the book? Imagination and Idealism in John Updike's Fiction. Wow. Not, not a very only exciting read, title. I've only read Run, Rabbit, Run, but I love it. I always talk about it because it's got the Episcopalian who's nice but has nothing to say and the, the Lutheran who's – Who's really not very nice, but has a lot to say. The, I think the I Carl think that figure. The, what's Krupenbach? Is that his name? I think his name. It just cracks me up. But he he's very incisive about what denominations are actually like. <laughs> you should. Uh, you got to read Rabbit Radix to see what happens to Eccles, the 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 limp-wristed Episcopalian. Ooh. Okay. I I actually don't really recommend Rabbit Radix. It's a pretty nasty novel, but you know something does happen to to Eccles anyway. Uh, okay. That being said, there's a footnote in your romance chapter that I, I really want to ask you about. Uh, you say, in the Church of Seculosity, stand-up comedians and late-night talk show hosts are the preachers. And I wrote, tell me more in the margins next to that footnote. And I'm so glad that I've got you on the line to ask you out loud to tell me more. I've gotten really tired of stand-up comedy for exactly that reason. And I would love it if you could help me understand my fatigue. Well, I think a stand-up comedy. Um, what is Norm, Norm Macdonald puts it well. You know, he's he's the great he's a great stand-up comedian. Um, he says it used to be that stand-up comedians the goal was to be the funniest person in the room, and now today the goal is to be the smartest person in the room, and that that's very different. Um, or it, the goal is to make people laugh rather than impress people. And I don't know if that's 100% across the board because there are some very funny people out there. But by and large, when I watch, a lot of our cultural discourse goes around, well, this this stand-up comedian said this and this stand-up comedian said that. They're almost uh, using their platforms as a, they're like Old Testament prophets and sort of holding the mirror up to us about um, you know our cultures something like that there 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 is a bit of there's a lot of law in it there's a lot of sort of uh, uh this is this is what we actually look like and there's you know i think the impulse to laugh is usually a good one but um there's very little there's so much anger underlying it and um uh yeah I've just I've just found that that for some reason, for there was a long period where people were saying that attention spans were shrinking, 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 and perhaps they are in the age of TikTok. But we've also found that 45 to you know 70 minute monologues have uh, like on podcasts and in stand up comedy specials have really continued to capture people's attention anything uh they're they're more that way and so it's just there's that creeping moralism that is into a lot of like uh um into a lot of comedy that especially is about i need to make sure you know all of my uh, politics and i need to make sure you know all of my uh you know check a lot of boxes about signaling who i am instead of really just trying to make you laugh and making you laugh, making myself the butt of the joke even to make you laugh. I think we see less of that or just pure absurdity. And today we, it's more of like a sustained argument with a lot of punchlines. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, it's interesting because laughter to me is like sleep in that it's a, a kind of non-spiritual form of grace. And it's, it's interesting that both, yes. of, both of these things are being turned into seculosity. Yes, yes, I, I, I think that's true. And I, you know, there was just there's just a period where like you'd see I don't know that something would happen in like the Democratic primary or or that 
Donald Trump or something like that. And, and these everything, you'd be like, well, this is what, you know, Samantha B said about it. And this is what Trevor Noah said about it. And this is what, and you just, you think, and, and all of these late night talk show hosts, this is what Jimmy Kimmel said. And you, you want to be like, wait, what, why do I care what all these people are saying about right. this? I thought they're, I mean, I, I, Johnny Carson wasn't making those kind of jokes and we were still getting by. And maybe that makes me sound curmudgeonly. I don't know. I don't really watch a lot of late night TV for precisely this reason, because I feel like I'm being lectured a lot. And, uh, I, and I really just want to be entertained. So, um, well, there was a period where Jimmy Kimmel like presented himself as the conscience of the na- nation, and my my friend Nathan, my co-host on the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, used to used to say, "Does nobody remember the Man Show?" <laughs> you know, like like Jim, Jimmy Kimmel may, exactly. may not have the best bona fides for being the moral voice of the nation. The Man Show. I think there were girls on trampolines. I mean, <laughs> not right. There's no. This is this is really where we're going for our. Turpitude? Anyway. I once heard a anyway. Catholic cultural commentator say that when a person doesn't have religion, politics becomes their religion, and I'm pretty sure you would agree with that statement. In my lifetime, I have watched politics turn from a sort of intellectual sport into the thing that we live for, the most important thing in our lives. And I think stand-up comedy is a great place where you see that because so much of it is about getting this political point across. Uh, is there a way out of that particular form of seculosity? Well, perhaps a global pandemic. That's a. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's being politicized uh, already, and it's very what, po- yes. And yet, the day we stopped caring about the Democratic primary, the second is true. It was, it was such a blessed thing, wasn't it? It was, and and I mean, yes, every and there's no, you know, some people can do no right, and some people can do no wrong, and it it everyone has. There, yeah, there are all sorts of. You, you're afraid to say such and such because it doesn't. You don't want to sound like you're fitting into this narrative being spun over here or that narrative being spun over there. There's very little freedom to talk about these things with any with any real honesty. So, uh, I don't know. I think that the political, the, the seculosity of politics has been very, very seductive to the I don't know the millennial generation for lack of a better word I mean my generation which is Gen X we, we were sort of proudly apathetic about a lot of this stuff cynical or you know Kurt Cobain you know that, that kind of right. um, and uh, that's the opposite is held true so it's hard not to feel a little either superior or just confused by it uh, in the younger people but I think they feel they see a purpose and they see a sort of a totalizing narrative about everything and uh, you know it's, it's you're very you're very tempted to to do that when you're especially when you're of a, a certain age um, and you've yet to really um, compromise your own principles uh, enough to know that no one no one is really living very consistently Uh so I don't know what the way out is. I, I that's one thing I kind of despair about. I mean, my my hope is in is really in God, not in the uh, sort of a change in politics. Uh, and I I get despondent when I see people thinking like four years is forever, or uh, you know this is this is the most you always hear this is the most important election that's ever happened. You're sort of like, well, didn't you say that? Two years ago, four years ago, six it, years ago, eight always, years ago. It's always the most. It's always the Flight 93 election. <laughs> and uh, it, after a while, maybe it's the Gen Xer in me, but I sort of roll my eyes a little bit and think, you know, I, there are things I care about, but I, I don't. It's not the only. It's not the sole 
language I have for making sense of the world. And I think that we do our, our young people, especially ed- educators, do their young people a disservice if they, they don't challenge them to at least think a little – think in terms of, you know – psychological terms or uh uh you know metaphysical terms or spiritual terms for crying out loud instead of just everything being about uh you know power structures because there are other things going on in life i I mean i I never thought i'd i'd hear myself say this but maybe we all just need to be a little more cynical about it that could be that could be Uh, yeah because cynicism is like a you know, I, I, I like a lot of people went through a cynical time. Uh, I think in you know, it was a bit of a pose, you know, a, a hipster thing in my twenties. Uh, and I, I feel like I'm less cynical once I, for me, certainly once I had children. And as a Christian, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical of certain endeavors, but or sort of a utopianism. But I'm, I'm not cynical. I'm hopeful about things ultimately. Uh, so, but cynicism is, is is usually it can be a lazy thing. But when it comes to politics, I I do wish that they would develop a little bit more cynicism, uh, I, I, or they, me, perhaps, but everyone. It it it's become too absorbing, and uh, too transparently uh, disappointing in its ability to actually do what it's claiming it, it can do. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody even knows what it's supposed to do anymore. Save the world, <laughs> right? But what does that mean? You know, right? Yeah, just, it's, it's just like if 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 our guy gets in, um, everything's going to be fine. It, the the and I, I don't want to make this about specific political positions, but the move from make America great again to keep America great again is fascinating to me. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like now, oh well, now that now that Trump has been in office four years, obviously everything has changed and America's great again. So now all we have to do is keep it great. I, that's that's it. Really is like if you have the right person in office, that's all that matters, and the actual conditions of people's lives uh, don't matter, and and really nothing else does. It's all about it's all about getting your guy in that particular position. Therefore, it's a proxy for enoughness in some sense. Right. It's like a, 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 I'm an, if my person wins, then I win, and I'm I'm good. I'm on the side of the angels, and I can feel I can rest knowing that I uh, am, am, am on, I've done all I could. That I'm justified, and that's uh, you know, um, yeah. I, I, it, it can it can. I wonder how we'll look back on this phase of. Um, Political obsession, political cults. Um, cults on. is the right word. It really does feel like that. It, it feels like the two political parties in this country are two death cults, and they're both trying to drag me over uh, one side of the cliff or the other. Huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a. Uh, so I, I talk about it in there that I I I, I try to um, bring to bear. I don't I don't even remember. What I say in the politics chapter, except for that I lean on Jonathan Haidt a bit and and talk about that for the most part, people are all trying to – they're following their moral intuitions and and right now and we we demonize people on the other side saying they're either evil or crazy and that is a – to the extent that we do that, we are not in touch with who we really are um, or the possibility that other people might have different values than we do. Um, 
and it becomes a uh, an absolute. It's it's the the stories we tell, not just about the world, but ourselves. And so we can't risk those stories about ourselves being untrue, because then our own, again, enoughness is at stake. And there's a lot of uh, performative, um, you know, uh, positioning and and activism that goes on. And we were that a lot of that is sort of on social media, but it becomes really demoralizing when. Um, when you talk to someone who is you see people flame out routinely on this stuff and then they they kind of come up for air six months later and they're like just they're like i totally lost myself in this kind of policing every opinion that came up came my way and um i started to hate everyone including the people on my own side because they weren't they didn't hold their 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 convictions strongly enough enough you know there's that word enough again Mm -hmm. um and so you not only hate the people on the other side of the aisle, you hate the people who are not pure enough, and it becomes a purity spiral. That's the word I think. Your purity spirals is uh, something we see in uh, young adult fiction, and we see it in knitting communities, and we see it certainly in the political cults that um, that dominate uh, so much of our cultural bandwidth right now. Well, just just think of the humid, fetid swamp of your your subconscious and the the number of skeletons in your closet. And then just imagine thinking that holding a particular political opinion could justify you. Do you know, like, I'm not good enough. I've done too many bad things to be justified by something that intellectual, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it makes makes you wonder, A, how much, total delusion is going on but hey how much is just is it really just something for belonging that um uh if i if i can if i can be loud enough about my opinion then i'll belong more even if i i know that i'm not really worth much and in fact if i really think i'm not worth much i'll be louder and louder and louder in order to garner more affection and acceptance and of course we know that that's a that's a circle that closes in on itself um and creates uh, again uh acrimony and division but there's something behind it that is a religious impulse that's not only about the salvation of the world, but it's about my own personal justification. And um, that's what's at stake when I'm shoving something down your throat. Well, that, that's what makes it so frustrating when you see Christians and, and really, I think both both. Uh, Christians of both political stripes in this country are are guilty of this. That's what makes it so frustrating when you see Christians um, turn religion into politics, because because they they are the ones who should see things as they are, should see the actual route of human justification, and instead they put it on their political candidate. It's true. I mean, there was a a book that came out of uh, UPenn last year about how today people's um, religion follows their politics rather than their politics follow their religion. And that's a big shift. That's a like, historical shift. It used to always be that, uh, meaning you choose your the church you go to based on the po- political beliefs they have rather than you belong to a church that sort of you think is right and that that sort of slowly shapes your political beliefs. And that's a, that's a very different way of, of, of operating in the world. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I love uh, – I mean I'm a failed Christian myself, and I say that meaning that I'm a sincere Christian who is a failed at, at living, uh, practicing what I preach. But they, uh, you do see um, one does wish the colossal mistake that certainly we've, we've made in um, conflating 
a religion with political ideologies is it can't it kind of can't be overstated in some ways yeah and i i this is this is another place where i just i don't know other than a complete collapse of our political system that would make us lose hope in our politics i i don't i don't know how we're going to get out of it yeah well yeah, I don't. I think honestly, what when I, when I tried to, when I tried to think up a few things towards the end that would maybe um, could some ways forward. I do think talking about death more. If uh, mm-hmm. you know, we we've lost a little bit of that in in both the right and the left. Um, the right is all about growing in personal holiness, and the left is all about you know uh, pursuing the kingdom and social justice kind of expressions and neither is about deliverance from the, you know, this veil of tears and uh, eternal life in any respect, or at least just how to cope with the fact that we're all going to die. And that is a unifying thing. And certainly the church has enormous resources and um, gravity when it comes to that subject. So that's one thing I, that's one sort of suggestion I make. And, and that's, again, that's one of the reasons why I see this pandemic not as a categorically negative thing, but as a, as seeds of good things, perhaps embedded within uh, what is a horrifying <laughs> um, turn of events. So, so much of this seems to be about hope to me. Where, where do we, where do we put our hope? What do we see as being able to deliver us? And so, yeah, if the pandemic can reveal the shallowness of some of these things, uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll put our hope in something that can actually sustain it. Well, I'm definitely watching people, at least the, you know, our church can't meet right now, but People are paying attention. They're 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 not thinking about because like I said they're not thinking about the things they were thinking about yesterday, and uh, some of the stuff that they thought was so important has at least momentarily receded into the background. And um, I at least where my church um, people are interested in grace and mercy and forgiveness and uh, you know the, the sin and redemption and. Um, the great themes of uh, the Christian faith. And I found that to be, so people are paying more attention, not less. And it's not because we're being like, hey, don't forget about us. We're the church. You know, we're great too. Even though we can't meet, it's it's much more, we've had a lot of that buffering, a lot of that busyness, um, again, uh, deconstructed. Uh, and and so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hopeless at all because I, 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 you know, you go through the world and you see people getting healed, and you see you see people uh, released from burdens, and you know, people who are addicts are functioning functioning well. It just I don't know how it operates globally, but um, yeah, well, it's interesting you bring up addicts because the 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 whole twelve step program involves you saying I'm not enough, you know, I'm, yes, I, I am no longer capable of resisting this thing that's destroying me. I need help from beyond. I can't even pretend I'm enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, every attempt I've made has backfired, and here I am. And uh, I think that that's one, of the, that's one of the secrets to its lasting potency. And I think there was, there was just another huge thing in the New York Times about AA, which was people are trying, always trying to discredit because there's, for whatever reason, um, Maybe they have bad experiences with it, or it seems too religious, or something. But another, a bunch of scientists came together and said nothing works like this does, and um, we can criticize it all we want. But this is where people seem to be um, being really helped. 
Yeah, so I mean, maybe maybe that's the direction the church should go. Not not in the sense AA is is a kind of um, non-specific uh, uh, faith, but uh, maybe maybe the church can learn the lessons of humiliation and not enoughness from AA. I mean, they meet in our basements already. Yeah, because saying that you're not enough doesn't mean you don't have dignity. It doesn't mean you. It's not self-loathing. That's it's right. just more of a. It's actually uh, being rescued uh, from yourself. Honest, repentant attitude. Yes, it's exactly. The self-loathing is what's driving you into this corner. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I make a pitch for that in one of the closing chapters about AA being a great model, and no one's defensive about AA because they're like, if I if I wasn't going to meetings, I'd die. Right. Um, Right. People like, go every I, I don't day. care. Richard Dawkins, I don't really care what you think. You know, it's it's uh, you can think anyone can think whatever they want. I just know that I was uh, uh, killing myself and I could not stand up to this uh, condition. And uh, something happened. And here I am alive and talking about it. So I, I think the hunger a lot of us are feeling for religious services right now. You know, I, I think I think that's a good sign. Yes, and that's what I meant. I, I, I feel like there's a – I was surprised when we broadcasted our first uh, s- service via um, you know, the internet. Um, I thought, oh, this is such a sad facsimile of the real thing. <laughs> Which it is. And uh, although we did our best, and it's, it's not the same thing. It clearly isn't. But And yet it was met with such warmth and encouragement and just supreme gratitude. So I thought to myself, we're we're maybe there's something essential happening here. <laughs> now, now we just gotta hope that the lesson we all take from this is uh, we don't need to hold church in an actual building. We can just do it online. Yeah, I really hope that's not what happens. I mean, <laughs> but anyone, <laughs> I mean, everyone's gonna have their live streaming set up. That's for sure. That's true. Yeah. Oh, I've been at the wheel so far, but in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we'd like to give our guests the final word. What hasn't been said here that you'd like our listeners to know about your book or society or anything else? Well, just just to underline that as critical as it sounds, I, I place myself within all of these um, seculosities. You know, I'm a, I'm a person who's, uh, you know, is, falls victim to and uh, complicit in. All of the the seculosity of food and the seculosity of leisure and the seculosity of uh, romance and all of these things. I'm I'm a workaholic in my own way, and so I don't want it to sound like I'm looking down on this from above. Uh, but I do. But because I'm not looking down on it from above, I'm I'm personally acquainted with the with the burden uh, that it even in the best of circumstances that it it. Uh, it, it leaves on people's shoulders and the kind of low-level suffering and anxiety that accompanies us through life. And um, as, so as critical as it sounds, I, I want to say I, I really do place myself within it. And yet I also – it's not as – it's not a, a despondent book in the slightest because I really – in each chapter I try to, to point out examples of – because, you know, parenting romance food these are all great things they're not nothing here is like bad um at least you know on the surface uh i try to tell stories or give examples of how um what it may be a non-seculosity type relationship with these with these uh, uh arenas might look like it does look like and then also bring in some some uh some theology or a little a little bit of uh bible into this little bit of scripture so uh, there's real hope uh, for me and 
for the world. I, I um, whereas I do, I, I do, I do hope it gives people a vocabulary uh, for, or at least a tr- way of translating things they're already feeling, and uh, and maybe also a little bit of a reassurance that it's, especially for the Christians out there, that maybe it's it's not it's not as strange or weird to be religious as we sometimes think it is. In fact, we're all we're all pretty much in this together. The real question is whether or not uh, there's any room for grace in whatever it is uh, to drives your own. Uh, religiosity and uh hopefully it's that grace lies at its center uh rather than uh to the side or non-existently absolutely well we've been talking to david zoll about his recent book seculosity that book is out now from fortress press and as we learned it'll be out in paperback in august with an additional chapter you can visit david's website at mbird.com you can also visit our website which is christianhumanist.org Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. I'm Michael Farmer. Thanks for listening.